you know, be be vulnerable, be authentic. Of course, do it with boundaries, do it with reading the room, but but do it. This is the Leadership 480 Podcast. Hi, leaders, and welcome back to the Leadership 480 Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Alms. And today we're talking about who we really are at work and what it means to be an authentic leader. I hope you all are ready to get honest with us today as I chat with our special guest, Jacob Morgan, a best-selling author, professionally trained futurist, and highly sought-after keynote speaker on leadership. He's also the host of an award-winning podcast called Leading the Future of Work and a social influencer. At this point, Jacob is also working on a new book on vulnerability in leadership, and that has a lot to do with our topic today. So, Jacob, you've joined us once before on the Leadership 480 podcast, and I'm so glad to have you back on this topic. Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to it. It's kind of like a, a sneak peek because I haven't really explored this uh, topic in too much depth as I'm planning for the book. So we'll see where the conversation goes. <laughs> Sounds great. So... There's a lot of talk about authenticity at work these days, especially in the wake of the pandemic. All of a sudden, it's like we've got to get real. Something's crazy going on in our lives, both at work and at home. And most people, we've kind of got zero energy to hide it right now. So yeah. how do you think authenticity at work is defined in this new era? Um, I, simply put, I think authenticity is just being a single version of you. Um, you know, traditionally in the corporate world, we've always had a separate persona for our work life and a separate persona for our personal life. And we didn't let those two meet each other. It's kind of, um, th there's actually a show on Apple TV, which I'm a big fan of, uh, which some listeners may be familiar with called Severance. And it's a new show. And the whole premise of the show is that your memories are severed. And mm. what happens at work, there's like a work version of yourself and a personal version of yourself. And the two never meet. So when you show up to work, you only remember stuff that happens there. And as soon as you go in the elevator and you exit the building, you become your personal self again and all your work memories you don't remember. And that's traditionally how we've tried to think about work-life balance, right? You don't bring your home, you don't bring your work home with you and you don't bring your personal life with you to work. And you have Jacob A and Jacob B. <laughs> and I think this world of authenticity is really saying that there is only one single version of you. And that is the single version of you that you need to be wherever you are. And ultimately, I think that's what authenticity is really about, is just being you. That's so interesting. And I'll tell you, my husband and I often joke about um, the moment we answer the phone, we know if it's a, the other person is on a work call or a regular call because you have like work voice that you put on, you know, like as soon as you answer it, I'm, hi, I'm Beth Alms. And he's like, oh, that's a work call. She. She's on a work call. Yeah. So there's almost a different voice and mannerism that even goes with those two different personas. There's voice, there's mannerism, there's dress code, there's body language that's different. Eye contact is different. How we present ourselves is different. How we speak is, I mean, it, it's uh, it's very, very different. And um, it's, you know, a lot of people don't think about it, but when you really start to take a step back and pay attention, you've noticed that y most of us have created these two different personas of ourselves. And now we're starting to realize, you know, it's kind of like, um, what is it, like a Doctor Strange uh, <laughs> episode where we've created these two universes and they're trying to coexist and we're realizing that we can't keep them in these two separate universes anymore. They're crashing and colliding together and forcing us just to be us instead of these two different alter egos. So... 
I think one of the questions we often hear from from leaders too, and I, I get this especially if for from folks who are a little bit more traditional in their view of work, but how is it really crucial to be authentic? Because sometimes you you'll look out there, there's iconic business leaders who run multi-billion dollar companies and they're not authentic at all. And yeah. in many ways you would say, sure, they're a big success, but so is it really necessary? What are the benefits of becoming an authentic leader? I think it depends on what your what your goals are and what your aspirations are. So I'm I'm exploring this in depth for my new book that I'm working on, Vulnerability. And tied to that, this theme of authenticity keeps coming up. And one of the things that I always ask these CEOs, and I've interviewed around 40 of them so far, uh, and I'm going to have 100 in total, is I always ask them, is this stuff necessary? And the general consensus is if you just want to be good, you know, if you just want to make money for the company, if you just want to be good at delegating, if you just want to be good, you probably can do whatever you want. If you want to be great, you cannot be great unless you connect with your people. And you cannot connect with your people unless you are authentic, unless you are vulnerable. So it really depends on on, on where you want to go and on the impact that you want to have. Because we've all worked for leaders who, you know, they're they're good. They're they're not great. You know, they're okay. They they're not mean to us. They're cordial to us. They're nice to us. They say hi. But there's nothing really there beyond that. And those leaders tend to do okay, right? You know, they 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 lead successful teams. They make money for the company. But those are the types of leaders who ultimately will never go beyond that. They're never going to truly unlock the potential of other people. They're never truly going to create this kind of human connection. They're never truly going to solve the world's biggest problems or tackle uh, complex challenges or unlock opportunities. Because in order to do all those things, you can't do them alone. And you will not be able to do them with people unless you can be authentic with them. Uh, It also, I think, sells yourself short because if you are not Uh, willing to be authentic and even one step further if you're not willing to be vulnerable it makes it very hard for you to learn it makes it very hard for you to be curious it makes it hard for you to you know be the best and the most full version of yourself so do you need to be authentic no i mean you can just keep going on doing what you're doing and you know be okay with it but i think if you want to be a great leader um then that's really where it, it really is crucial you know, and you mentioned vulnerability there. Um, and I think when I've talked to it with folks about the idea of authenticity at work, um, there's some fear behind it of, you know, when we say there's one version of myself, that means you might share with your team that you enjoy a certain type of music or something that you're afraid that people will say, oh, I, that's stupid. Or like, I, I don't, I don't like that idea or it makes them lose respect for you. So there's some fear about that. Mm-hmm. Um, in the vulnerabilities. So how do you help? How do people get over that? How do you get over that fear of like, you know, if I share this, there's the possibility that people will think less of me? Yeah. Well, um, so I can share a very, very personal story that just happened recently. And it's a, it's a very tragic and unfortunate story, but it's, you know, it happened. So there was somebody, uh, he was, you know, one of my biggest evangelists, one of my biggest supporters. We never met in person. But we spent a lot of time um, having virtual calls together. I did a virtual presentation that he was hosting. And we, you know, we spent a lot of time exploring ideas and even talked about uh, one day doing an event together where he lived in Spain. And 
All of a sudden, I, I haven't heard from him in a little while, and his name is um, Manuel. Haven't heard from him in a little while, and all of a sudden, two days ago, I get a message from somebody that says, hey, I'm sorry to tell you, Manuel passed away. And I, I was like very, very heartbroken for that because the last message that he put up on LinkedIn was talking about a conversation that we had on leadership and employee experience and this webinar that we did together. And so I was very crushed and heartbroken by that. Um, but what made it worse is then I, I talked to to somebody else who who knew him. And she said, you know, Manuel really looked up to you. He really admired you. But he didn't want to share really personal things with you because he didn't want you to think less of him. Like he didn't want to share too many of his personal challenges with you. He didn't want to share too many of his personal struggles. Like he really wanted to just be focused on work because he didn't think that I would want to do these webinars with him if I knew, um, you know, more about him and personal struggles and challenges, which we all have. And that was really crushing to me because I try to not give off that impression with anyone. And so I was, you know, definitely in tears. And I was like, wow, that that's terrible. Like, I never want anybody to feel that way. And it's unfortunate because he, here's this person, this great person who, um, you know, I, I considered a friend who we probably would have been great friends if we lived together, who didn't feel that he could be vulnerable with me because of how I would perceive him. And and that to me is the most tragic thing. Uh, piece of all of this. And so for me, the lesson that I took away is you should be vulnerable because oftentimes what happens, and there was some research that was done on this topic by a lady named Anna Bruck, and she created this concept uh, called the beautiful mess effect. And what she found in doing a lot of her research is oftentimes when we perceive other people as being vulnerable, we um, prescribe positive attributes to them. So, oh, Beth is vulnerable. Oh, that's so great. She's so brave. She's so courageous. Good for her. But oftentimes when we think about vulnerability for ourselves, we think of like, oh, bad things are going to happen. Like, I can't let my insecurities out. I can't let people know, you know, all these things uh, about me because I'm going to be embarrassed and people will think less of me. And so it's really an irrational way that we think um, because when we think of other people being vulnerable or even authentic, we think of positive things. But when we think of ourselves doing it, we think of negative things. And again, it's a very irrational way that our brains um, think about this stuff. We, 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 when it comes to ourselves, we try to think of the negative and other people, we think of the positive. So you you do need to be vulnerable. I mean, if you're thinking about it, you do it. But of course, boundaries are important. You know, one of the most important skills that I think a lot of successful CEOs have is they know how to read the room, meaning you know who to share information with and who not to share information with. And if you share information with somebody and it ends up not having the desired effect, you learn from it. It's kind of like a comedian who takes the stage, right? <laughs> you look at any successful comedian or even a speaker for that matter. Um, but specifically, if you look at a comedian, not every joke that they tell all the time is going to hit. And if they tell a joke on stage and it doesn't hit, do they stop being a comedian and retire? No. They make a mental note of that and they say, okay, maybe I need to reword this. Maybe it's the audience where it didn't click. Or maybe it's just a bad joke and maybe I just shouldn't share this with other people anymore. And you know what? The next day they get back on stage and they do their set and they keep working at it and they keep improving. Being authentic at work, I think, is the same thing. You will get into situations where sometimes you read the room incorrectly, where maybe you share something and the other people don't respond in the way that you thought they were going to. 
or where you share something and they look at you and they say, oh my God, Jacob's an idiot. I cannot believe he shared that. And, and that's okay. You learn from it and you say, okay, mental note, um, Beth doesn't like really talking too much about family or personal stuff. So I'm just going to keep it light with Beth. You know, how is your day? How's it going? You know, mm-hmm. all right, let, let's move on. And you, you make those mental notes and you create those boundaries and you know, who can you be more authentic with? Who can you be more vulnerable with versus, uh, versus other people? So don't let it discourage you. It's kind of like, um, you know, we've all been in those situations and settings with friends where sometimes, you know, you say something to a friend or you say something to a family member and it's, it gets taken out of context or it gets taken the wrong way. And you make, you make a note of that. You don't just not, never talk to that person again, mm-hmm. but you, you learn from it. And I think what we do inside of our organizations should be no different. Be authentic, um, be you and just pay attention to who you surround yourself with. Pay attention to, uh, you know, reading the room, picking up on social cues, knowing what you can share and how you can act and how you can behave in different environments and settings. That's, it requires a level of self-awareness, but there's no magic thinking behind it, but you can't just be a robot every day. I think that's such great insight. And your story about Manuel really, um, was making me think about there's there's the aspect of being authentic yourself um but then there's how, how can you be welcoming towards other people being authentic with you and and my guess with manuel was there was nothing you ever did that made him think i can't be it was his own assumptions of like oh i just am assuming that because jacob does all these things he's not going to like me and and all of those things yeah. so how do you kind of set that stage for others to be authentic with you and, you know, in, in all fairness to Manuel, I think he was authentic with me. He was not vulnerable. Like mm-hmm. the Manuel that I saw, I think, is the Manuel who who he is. It was his personality. You know, it was, it was the intense, the like excited, the the, the fun Manuel. Like it, it was him. I didn't think I was getting a different version of him. Mm-hmm. But he didn't feel like he could be vulnerable with me. Mm-hmm. And so there is a difference between, I think, being authentic and being vulnerable. Being authentic is being that single version of you. Being vulnerable, on the other hand, is revealing your insecurities. One CEO described it as revealing your um, uh, your uh, ignorance, so to speak. And I've had a lot of different CEOs define vulnerability in different ways. But authenticity and vulnerability, I think, are two two different things. But the authenticity piece comes back to that just being that that single version of you. And look, if people don't like you for you, don't be around those people. If <laughs> right, I mean, if if, if yeah. you work at a company. And, you know, if we worked at the same company and it's like, God, I really hate Beth. I did like, I don't want to be, I'm, I'm not going to spend time with you. Right. I'm going to, I'm going to try to, to, to get away from you. I'm not going to be, you know, I'll still say, Hey Beth, but I'm not going to go out of my way to build that relationship or to build that connection, which is, you know, not everybody's going to build a connection with everybody else. We build connections with people who we are naturally attracted to, who we find commonalities with, who we see that there is you know, it's kind of like that human, like we know uh, if we're going to be connected with somebody, whether it's on a romantic level, spouse, significant other, or or a friend or a coworker. And there are always those people who you are just like, ooh, I don't see anything going on there. But somebody else will see potential there. So it is okay, right? Not everybody's going to accept you. Not everyone is going to want to be um, your best friend. But that should not deter you from being who you are. I, I think that's so important. Um, 
So how do you, what about the kind of bigger picture of the culture surrounding you? So as you're trying to be authentic with others, but everyone else around you, if they're very guarded, how do you try to change that or, or start to influence that situation? So if, uh, so if you're okay to, um, yeah, so if you're okay to be vulnerable and, or authentic and everybody around you is, is not, um, chances are you're in a different environment than, than you should be. Like if you, if you're part of a company where you're trying to be you and you feel that nobody else is either encouraging that, supporting that, believing that, or acting in that way, then you really need to take a step back and say, is this the right company for me? Like, why, why would you want to be in an organization where you can't be you? And I think that's where we need to take a step back from an individual level and say, you know what, this is not the right company for me, which also means you need to do more of your due diligence before you take a job and understand that it's not just about a paycheck. It's about making sure that the values, uh, the culture align with your beliefs and that the people that you're going to be working with, you, you see alignment with them. And that they behave and act in a way that aligns with the type of person you want to be. Same thing like uh, being friends with somebody or same things uh, like, uh, uh, you know, looking for looking for a spouse and things that you, you want to see in them. I, I think in an organization, and in fact, I always say that um, working for an organization is just like being in a relationship. There's not a lot of differences there. So if you don't feel like you are in that kind of environment, I don't think you should be a part of that company or a part of that team. And I think that's, I'm sure that's um, been a big fuel in the great resignation lately. It seems like a lot of folks are saying if I'm, if everything isn't coming together for me, I'm not feeling like this is where I need to spend my time and effort. I'm yeah. happy to go do that somewhere else or even take a break from it for a while until I figure out where's, where's the right place for me to spend my time. Yeah. And you know what? I think that's a great thing. Uh, I think people should be doing that um, because it's, um, I mean, one of the things that the pandemic has really taught us is that it has made it, I think, very clear what we care about and what we value. And, you know, prior to the pandemic, there used to be, I think, some uncertainty around what do I care about? What do I value? What do I need? Then the pandemic happened and all of us really, our priorities shifted. I mean, even personally, right? I lived in the Bay Area pandemic happened, all of our friends moved away and we're stuck in the Bay Area. And one day my wife and I are like, what, what the hell are we doing here? We have no friends here. We have no family here. So we moved back to Southern California, where I honestly thought I would never, ever live again. <laughs> My wife and I would joke that we would never want to come back here. How could people live here? Pandemic happened, and guess what? We live in Southern California, 15 minutes away from my parents. <laughs> and that's that's because the pandemic made it very clear for us, what do we care about? We want community. We want help with our, our two kids. We want to be near family. We want that support system. That became number one priority for us. And for other people, that priority could be different. Maybe some people realized they want a high-paying job. That's what matters most. Maybe other people realize that it's not just about money and they just want to do things that make a difference or they want to be near family. And, you know, these are things that we maybe have thought about before, but the pandemic has really made it crystal clear what these priorities are. And really what I think the great resignation is about, or the great reshuffling, if you want to call it, because people are oftentimes switching switching jobs, not just mm -hmm. resigning in total. Um, one of the things that we're seeing is people are making choices based on what those priorities are. Like, I don't feel valued here. I want to, life is too short. 
I want to be part of a company that truly values me. Whether that's money, whether that's something else, that's what I care about. So yeah, the great resignation is really, I think, a wake-up call for organizations to create places where people genuinely want to work there, not where they need to work there. And I think that's such a good point, though. I mean, people, when you call it the great reshuffling, too, I mean, you're not really getting, as a leader, you know, as people leave, like, you're not, you're just inheriting new employees who have a different set of expectations and you have to kind of live up to that or, or they'll be leaving in a year or two down the road anyways if it's not yeah. so the pandemic has certainly been i think a wake-up call for a lot of leaders but as you've interviewed people um, about vulnerability and authenticity do you find that most leaders is it a natural behavior for them is it something they have learned over time is it something that they switch with a wake-up call like the pandemic it's a mix. Uh, I've talked to some leaders who are clearly, this is how they were. Yeah, I mean, I can give you a couple examples, right? I talked to the CEO of a company called Genpact yesterday, big professional services firm. They have around 115,000 employees. Their CEO is Tiger Tiaga Rajan. Uh, we just talked yesterday. And uh, he strikes me as a very open and vulnerable person. And I said, well, you know, what, what happened? And he was telling me this story about when he was 24 years old, he graduated from an MBA program. And he was taking a job working for this company and he was supposed to work for this guy. And this guy had a really big reputation of like hating the new kids who came in. Mm -hmm. He just despised them. He wanted to make their life hell. He didn't want to, you know, work with them. And Tiger took this job and he was supposed to be this guy's boss because he got his MBA and he was supposed to be mm -hmm. this guy's boss who was, you know, in his uh, late 40s, 50s. And... Um, he had a couple of ways that he could approach that, right? He could have gone in and he could have said, look, I'm your boss. I don't care if you don't like me, but you're going to do a good job for me. Instead of what he did, his first day on the job, he went over to him and he said, look, I don't know anything. Um, and I want you to teach me. And I want to learn the ropes of this company. I look up to you. I admire you. And I understand that I'm you and I, I don't know anything here. And I want you to help me and, and make me better. And to his surprise, the guy responded back and said, you know what, I'm going to do everything I can to make you succeed. And you're now like my son. And this is in like a five, 10 minute conversation. Wow. And so by being vulnerable, he immediately like switched that, um, that around from somebody who was going to hate him, who somebody who he said is now like his son. I talked to um, Lara Abrash. She's the CEO of a big division of Deloitte, tens of thousands of employees and she was telling me this story of how she got put into a leadership role. Um, and she was in this leadership role and she, she knew it was going to be a hard position, but she went into it thinking, you know what? I got a plan. I got a strategy. It's going to work. It's going to be amazing. I'm going to be totally fine. And she goes in there and a couple months in she's, she's failing. She's having a hard time. She's struggling. And in a moment of vulnerability, she goes to her CEO at the time and she's like, look, I can't do this. I think you've made a mistake by putting me here. I, I can't handle this. Things are not going my way. And, um, you know, I'm sorry to say this, but I, I shouldn't be doing this. And the CEO at the time, the way that she explained it, just kind of smiled at her and said, I know. And I know this is going to be tough. And I expected you to fail. And I knew this was going to be hard. And let's come up with a plan to help make you succeed. And they work together and they come up with a plan. And now she's the CEO running this massive division of, of Deloitte. And it was because... She was vulnerable. It was because she um, admitted that that she needed help. 
And, you know, in different situations, it you know, like for Tiger, it happened when he was um, in his early 20s. For Lara, it happened later on in her career um, because she was put into a very difficult leadership position and, and she was having a hard time. I talked to the CEO, of, uh, the CEO of Swiss Airlines and he was telling me he was never a vulnerable person. He was always commanding control. He was always just like, do what I tell you to do. Um, and then one day, early on in the morning, he gets a phone call that uh, I think it was flight 111 crashed and like 120 or 130 people died. And he became vulnerable because he saw the grieving. He saw how people were coming together, employees, family members, how everybody banded together in this really tragic moment for the company and you know for, for um, the family members. And he realized after that moment, he can't lead the way he was. He can't be command and control. He needs to be vulnerable. So I think for different leaders, it happens at different times. Uh, you know, I think your upbringing is a big part of it, how you were raised. But I think it's also situational. And it could be being put into a tough spot. It could be experiencing tragedy. It could be any number of things. So it's, um, you know, it's it's a gamut. It's a, it's a mix across the board. <clears throat> Another CEO told me about how he went through a really terrible divorce in the 80s, and that made him more vulnerable. Another CEO shared another tragedy where he had a um, a daughter who had a very rare disease called BPAN, and she's in her 20s now, and she's never said a word. And she's not able to be, um, you know, a, a self-sustaining adult. But he also told me that her greatest joy is just like, driving down the, the road really fast and he opens his windows and she just feels the wind on her face and that's her greatest joy. And he shares these vulnerable moments with, with his team. Um, and so I think whether it's through personal tragedy or through um, a, a work-related difficulty or challenge that you're trying to overcome, or maybe you were raised and brought up that way, uh, People become vulnerable in different ways. But I do know that at some point, life will make you vulnerable. Something will happen where you will be vulnerable. And you should never <clears throat> you should never stuff it down. You should never um, try to avoid it. Uh, you should never try to repress all those things. Because what happens is your body starts to physically manifest symptoms. And, you know, I experienced this and I haven't actually shared this story with anybody. Um, and it's going to be something that I'm going to talk about in the book. But, you know, I had a anxiety or a, or a panic attack a while ago. And it was because I was stuffing in, stuffing down all these emotions and pushing them down. And finally, when confronted with the idea of writing a book about vulnerability, my body was just like, you're going to have to confront something that goes against your nature, <laughs> something that is not a part of who you are. And uh, my body reacted. And so if you try to not be authentic, to not be vulnerable, to push everything down, you're going to start to find that you will physically manifest things, whether it's anxiety or panic attacks, whether it's gaining weight, whether it's being um, uh, moody to people, or whether it's uh, physical pain that you might experience. Like your body will let you know that this is not a good thing. And I, I mean, I genuinely think like it, it can kill you. It can hurt you. So, you know, be be vulnerable, be authentic. Of course, do it with boundaries, do it with reading the room, but but do it. Those are such powerful stories. And I think um, when you think about how much time you spend at work, if you are not being authentic, it's an awfully long time to spend 
and exhausting if, if you're not being yourself, if you're putting on an act. And, and then if you're expecting that of others as well. So if you're the leader of the team and you're expecting others to do the same, um, it's really a tremendous uh, mental and emotional load to try to be that work person who's not really you for such a big part of the week. Yeah. I mean, I, as one CEO, he explained it to me the same way. I, and I said, why are you vulnerable at work? Why do you share these things with your people? Why do you let people know about your personal and professional challenges? And he's like, Jacob, I'm at work like eight to 10 hours a day as the CEO of this company. And the thought of me being something other than myself for eight to 10 hours a day just seems exhausting and tiring and something that will hurt me. So he's like, I'm not going to do that. And I think it goes against, as you're sharing these stories, I think it goes against that advice that you have in here, just the fake it till you make it, like pretend that everything is totally fine, even if you're going crazy. And I still see that advice around a lot. And while there's something to be said for having a little bit of confidence, even when you're um, feeling down at the same time, I think the stories you're sharing of people who admitted at some point I'm struggling or... Um, or they, they said, I'm struggling with something else in my life and I'm bringing that to my role as a leader. Um, it's not, if you keep trying to fake it, you, you might end up in a place where it's really causing problems for you, um, even physically as well as mentally and emotionally. Yeah, it, it can really um, it can really hurt you. So um, I, I always encourage people, be, be the single version of you, life is short. You never know what's gonna happen, so. So, as many of us are now working in a virtual world as well, do you think it's harder or or become easier to build that authenticity with between leaders and their teams? Um, in some ways, it's easier. In some ways, it's harder. Um, it's easier in the fact that we are now having more of a window into each other's lives. Like we're we're having phone calls with each other. We see our kitchens, we see our family rooms, you see a kid running in the background, you might see a spouse or a pet. And so you have more of a glimpse into the lives of the people that you work with. So from that perspective, it's been good. The, from the the downside of that is we miss the human aspect, which is still very, very relevant. Um, so I interviewed a researcher and he told me that I think you get between 50 to 80% of the um, uh, oxytocin when you're vulnerable with somebody digitally versus um, in person. Wow. So the in-person still, it, it still matters because you have those casual conversations, you have those casual bump-ins, you can get coffee with each other, you can spend time with each other. You, you don't have any of that in a digital environment and it's hard to create that trust, that psychological safety. You don't have that body language, you don't have you don't have that same presence that you do um, when you are in person. It's kind of like, you know, would you only have virtual friends or would you only have a virtual spouse? Why not? Right? It's not the same, right? You need the in-person, you need the touch, you need the hug, you need the handshake, you need the, the chatting, the walking, like you need these things just as a human being. Um, so from that regard, it's been very, very hard. And so we do need both of those things, right? We need to get a glimpse into each other's lives and who we are as people. But I think there's also still very much a place for the in-person um, in person relationships, which is why we're having so much conversation about hybrid work, right? The, the ideal situation of being able to blend the two. 
Yeah, it, it's just such a tough call right now for leaders as well who feel like they want to engage with their teams, but they're not looking to take away flexibility. Um, it's it's such a tough time as people are trying to figure out this this next step of how can we still connect just as authentically and yet um, maintain a lot of the uh, good things that have come out of virtual work where in jobs that can do it. Yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons to everything, right? So um, it's, it's just the nature, the nature of life, the nature of work. Um, but it's, yeah, uh, I, I like I said, I do think there's still very much a place for the in-person stuff. But the virtual has still allowed us to keep those relationships and to get a glimpse into each other's lives. So my last question for you today is one that I ask all of our guests on the show Uh can you share with me a moment of leadership that changed your life, whether for the better, a leader who inspired you or even one that made you say, I'm going to go in the opposite direction and never do that? Yeah, the, the story that probably the most pivotal story in my life is the one that I've shared many, many times in, in my speeches and in my books. And it was when I graduated college and it was the first job I ever had. <clears throat> so I graduated college with a dual degree in economics and psychology. And I went to UC Santa Cruz. I was very, very excited to join the corporate world. And my first job out of college was working for a company in Southern California. And <clears throat> I took the job working for this company because I was sold a story. I would be doing these great things and traveling the country, meeting with entrepreneurs, doing this really impactful stuff. And it was a three-hour daily commute, hour and a half to work, hour and a half back each day. But I took the job because of the story. And a couple of months into my job, I'm just doing data entry and cold calling and PowerPoint presentations. And the pivotal moment for me was when the CEO comes out of his beautiful corner office and uh, he screams, you know, Jacob, I got a really important project for you. So I, I get excited. I'm thinking, here we are. I paid my dues. My time has come. I go over to the CEO and he uh, puts his hand in his pocket, takes out his wallet and gives me a $10 bill and says, I'm late for a meeting. I need you to go run to, run to Starbucks and get me a cup of coffee. Uh, and he said, you know, you can get yourself a latte as well. And at that moment, I realized, all right, something is very wrong here. Like, I, I, I have a dual major. I graduated with honors. Why am I doing this stuff? And uh, it made me realize that, you know, the way that we think about work and business is very, very broken. We assume that, you know, when you first start, you got to do the grunt work. You got to do the bad work. You got to be treated poorly because that's just how business is. But Why? I mean, why, just because you're new at the company, should you be treated poorly? Why should you not get leadership training unless you've been at the company for 10, 15 years? I mean, wouldn't it be much more impactful? Wouldn't you want to prioritize the experience of the people who are there on day one? Wouldn't you want to treat them better? Wouldn't you want to teach them and, and show them that there's opportunity for learning and growth? Shouldn't you as the CEO get them coffee? And I just realized that everything is very much flipped around. And um, after that moment, I realized that I don't want to work for anybody else ever again. You know, and I had some weird, you know, I, I was involved in like search engine optimization 15, 20 years ago and online. Like this is way before all the stuff I'm doing now. But it set me off on my path of being an entrepreneur and not wanting to work for anybody else ever again. Oh, that's such a powerful story. I, I love the idea of where you're coming around, um, you know, with if you're if you're the leader, the CEO, it's it's really almost you that should be getting the coffee for your team of how can I help you be better? How can I help yeah. you grow? And um, rather than you're here to kind of serve me, it's it's really the other way around. How can you make them 
um, the best that they can be. Yep, absolutely. Thank you so much for being here today on the Leadership 480 podcast. It has been such a pleasure to have you. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. And thank you to our listeners who took part of their 480 minutes today to be with us. And remember to make every moment of leadership count.